These days, the world's getting more anti-Christian. Aaron Wren says it's time believers stop being nice and start getting real. He's here today to deep dive into the future of the American church, the American man, and much more. I'm James Polis. This is Zero Hour. is a writer and consultant, as well as a co-founder and senior fellow at American Reformer. Today, his focus is on helping conservatives and the American church rise to the challenge of finding success in the 21st century. Welcome, Aaron. Thanks for having me. All right, so are Christians too nice or what? <laughs> well, I don't know that niceness per se is the problem, but modern Christians, especially Protestant evangelicals, are struggling to adapt to a world that sees Christianity differently than it used to. It used to be that Christianity was the mainstream of America. That there was a sort of softly established, institutionalized Christianity in America, even if there were not an established church. So if you go back to the 1950s, that's when we put in God we trust on our money. That's when we put under God into the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, Christianity was really bound up with America's conception of itself and its public morality. And since then, it's really gone into a decline. And I divide this period of decline into really three phases that I call uh, the positive, neutral, and negative world. So starting in, say, 1964 to 1994, Christianity is sort of going into decline in America, but it's still basically viewed positively in society. Then around 1994, we had a tipping point where it's no longer seen positively but it's not really seen negatively yet either. That's what I call the neutral world. It's just one more lifestyle choice among many. And then from 2014 on, uh, we hit a second tipping point. And now for the first time in the 400 year history of America, sort of official elite culture views Christianity negatively. Christian moral schema is rejected by society. And in fact, is now viewed as the main threat in many ways to the new public moral order. Since all of the uh, worry about Christian nationalism, uh, for example. And this has really caused the church to struggle to figure out how to adapt to this society because it's used to being the majority, claiming to be, as the old organization had it, the moral majority. And now we see that it is sort of a minority and it's really struggling to adapt in that way. I would say that they all—they have uh, always had this sort of uh, Christian nice guy ethos, uh, wanted to be liked, wanted people to kind of like them. And now that's less the case. And again, struggling with what to do. Yeah, I find it fascinating that you're able to sort of pin it down, at least in your own mind, to these, these particular years, 94 and, and 14. And, I, and we'll talk about that, I think, in, in a minute here. But uh, let's start with... Um Let's start with the interior forces. Um, this isn't just sort of Christians going along, living their lives, and, oh, the environment's changing, and what do we do? There's been stuff going on on the inside of Christianity in these different denominations as well, right? There's been pressure from within to sort of move in a, in a certain direction that is maybe more palatable or whatever, theological disputes. Uh, what do you make of the way that that's played out, just say, over, you know, from, from 94 onward, the internal sort of struggle over what Christianity is? Sure. I look at 
evangelicalism primarily. So the Catholic Church and things has its own dynamics I'm not as familiar with. But in the evangelical world, uh, it was never a monolithic movement. There are always these sort of different groups or tribes, if you want to call them. And I really identify them as people f following three different strategies for how to respond to this period of decline. And so two of them go back to this positive world that I mentioned, and those were the culture war strategy and secret sensitivity. And then the third one came out of the 90s uh, in what I call the neutral world is what I call cultural engagement. So you go back to the 70s, Christianity is in decline, we have the sexual revolution, church attendance is declining, what do you do? On the one hand, you had the emergence of the culture war people, where they decided to mobilize politically to try to take back the country. And this is where a moral majority came from, Pat Robertson, people of that nature, ultimately the Christian coalition. Evangelicals went from being largely Democrats to realigning into the Republican Party and becoming essentially the core constituency of the Republican Party in many ways. And again, they were really interested in being fighting against the emerging secularization, very combative against the culture. The secret sensitivity people also started in the 70s and into the 80s, pioneered by people like Bill Hybels at uh, Willow Creek Church in Chicago, Rick Warren at Saddleback Church. And they saw that church attendance was in decline and they said, well, why don't we do some market research find out why people don't go to church and design a church they'll actually go to. And so that's what Bill Hybels did. He literally went door to door asking people why they didn't go to church. And then he's like, well, they don't want stodgy hymns. They don't want choir robes. They don't want these old uh, old liturgies. They don't want to dress up anymore. So they created, want the Rose Bowl. Right. So they, they created what you might think of as the uh, secret sensitivity movement, which is really the non-denominational suburban megachurch that we sort of know of. And then in the 2000s, there was an, uh, as the cities came back, there was sort of a, a third variation called cultural engagement, which uh, you could think of it as either a secret sensitivity or the, uh, for the cities or sort of the opposite of the culture war people. These are people who kind of like the culture and who wanted to take advantage of this pluralistic public square to sort of articulate Christianity in a new way that they thought could get a hearing. And this was pioneered by people like Tim Keller at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. As we've entered the, the negative world, there really hasn't been sort of a negative world strategy uh, that has really emerged. The one that's really been out there that got a lot of press was Rod Dreher's Benedict Option. Now, Rod is Eastern Orthodox and formerly Catholic. He didn't come from the evangelical world. And so some of his sensibilities didn't resonate with evangelicals, but by and large, they sort of rejected it. So the flagship evangelical publication, Christianity Today, commissioned four people to give their opinion of the Benedict Option, and all four of them didn't like it, basically. Monasteries, thumbs down. Yeah. And so, uh, but, but nevertheless, I think that the pressures of the negative world started to bear down on these different constituencies and sent them in different ways. This group called the Cultural Engagers, again, they live in big cities, New York, D.C., San Francisco, they live in college towns. These are highly educated, upper-middle-class people. They had sort of um, traditionally, again, in the neutral world, they could sort of be Christian, be evangelicals, and sort of get along with the culture. Well, that has become increasingly difficult. No matter how winsome you are, you can still get attacked. And uh, just one example of that, there was this church in Columbia, Missouri, where the University of Missouri is located. The church was called The Crossing. So the very name of the church tells you that they wanted to build bridges to the community. And they partnered with a local film, film festival, 
called True False. They got profiled in the New York Times. They had partnerships with art galleries. They were really integrated into the life of the community. Then a couple years ago, they gave a sermon saying that there are only two genders. And boom, it was like a bomb went off. No and film festivals for no you. More film, the film festival kicked them out. The art gallery kicked them out. And now they're sort of on the outside saying what to do. And people are reacting in different ways. This church said, well, actually, we're not going to, we're, we're not going to, you know, we're going to turn the other cheek a little bit, but we're not compromising on our teachings. What a lot of other people did is they sort of pivoted culturally left, I would say. For example, they went all in on the BLM movement and uh, became very much about what I call refugees and racism and started adopting a more culturally progressive, if not necessarily theologically progressive um, public line, they talk less about abortion, less about sexuality, more about racial justice. That became their big thing. And of course, a lot of the culture war people didn't like that. Uh, they started saying, you're selling out, you're going left. But the culture war people themselves sort of morphed because if you go back to the Clinton era, they would have said character is paramount in politics. You know, Bill Clinton is simply morally disqualified from being president. But then all of a sudden, when it came to Donald Trump and his, you know, Access Hollywood tapes and all this other stuff, they didn't care anymore. It's realpolitik. And so these two groups of people really started fighting with each other. And the cultural engagement people uh, is sort of labeled these culture warriors neo-fundamentalists, and they want to separate from them and attack them. And then, the, you know, the culture war people who like to fight with people said, oh, we'll fight with these guys now. So now there's a culture war, but the culture war is internal to the church. And you have people uh, butting their heads. And as with Trump, just as Trump sort of overturned the game board uh, for Republican politics, I think the same thing has happened with this negative world. And Trump himself a little bit was, was a factor in this, sort of overturned the board. And it's caused a lot of you know, realignment uh, within kind of the evangelical world. See, one thing that happened was kind of the, the base, if you want to call it that, saw that the elites who tended to be more of this cultural engagement model didn't really share their values and didn't like them very much. And that really caused a lot of dissension. So there's sort of this elite-based split. And then there's people that just sort of realigned, changed teams, if you will. David French might be a good example of this. You know, go back 15 years, you would have said David French was a hardcore culture warrior. Now he's at the New York Times and spends half his columns bashing evangelicals. And he's a hard, hardcore culture warrior. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's, he's sort of like now bashing these other guys. And so um, I'm not saying that's insincere, by the way. But there's just been, you know, he sort of became like a never Trumper, only, you know, kind of a never, ne never kind of culture war uh, to the evangelicals. And Trump play, played a role in that. So we've had some of these realignments. We're having these sort of uh, people like, uh, you know, Russell Moore, who's now the editor in chief of Christianity Today. He resigned his old position in the Southern Baptist Convention, where he was basically the chief lobbyist for the Southern Baptist Convention. He not only resigned, he left his denomination. And now he spends a lot of time attacking other people, but he's running the flagship publication of evangelicalism. So you can see that people don't like that. And so, um, you know, you could think of some of his pieces as sort of like uh, that old uh, National Review uh, Kevin Williamson piece about how the people who are leaving in uh, Garbutt need to get a U-Haul and leave. There's, you know, uh, kind of very negative towards the Trump voter. And I think there's some of that within the cultural engagement. But again, 
the culture war people are giving the same back. I don't want to say they're they're playing nice. Yeah, well, don't you think that at the at the heart of a lot of these culture war disputes is ultimately theological disputes? I mean, how much of this crisis that American Protestantism is in, evangelicalism, uh, evangelicalism is in, how much of that just ultimately has to do with kind of the problem of, of heresy and the inability to kind of police or, or, or control? You know, otherwise you just keep having these fractures, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you'd have heresy. I, I would actually argue that the splits are more cultural than theological. I mean, really, some of the theology of um, evangelicalism is really a little thin uh, to some extent. Most of these are not like historic confessional denominations, like the Presbyterian Church, which had the Westminster Confession of Faith and very elaboratized statements of faith. Yes, there are evangelical Presbyterians and people in those traditions, but a lot of them had, uh, you know, a, a very simple... Uh, a very kind of a very simple like non-creedal theologies that was part of the secret sensitivity movement we don't need to have all of that stuff we just need to be pointing people to jesus and i think a lot of them were you know to be fair sort of hybridized with the cultural groups uh that they represented which has always been somewhat the case i think in in the church you know in america you know, the old Protestant mainline denominations were ethnically, racially, and socioeconomically stratified. And, you know, as you moved up in society, you might change denominations. You know, there's an old saying that, uh, you know, the, uh, the average American starts out, you know, Baptist, uh, you know, becomes a Methodist when he gets his uh, first white-collar job, you know, joins the Presbyterian Church when he gets his first promotion, and then when he makes it to the C-suite, he becomes an Episcopalian. Right. There was some of that. And so it's, there is, I think, that. You can think of these three groups as representing, for example, culture war representing more rural and small-town Christianity, um, the uh, uh, seeker-sensitives representing suburban Christianity, and then the cultural engagement people representing urban Christianity. And so I think those kind of different milieus of people, kind of their cultural backgrounds explains more than the theology. I think at their core, most of these groups would affirm the, uh, you know, many of the key theological tenets in common. You know, that the Bible is the literal word of God. It all contains all things necessary for salvation. Salvation is through faith alone and Jesus Christ, things of that nature that would be classic Protestant, uh, Protestant beliefs. And again, there's some, there's some differences around things like, you know, what does the Bible teach about race? But I think there's some more proxies for sort of um, cultural conflict. You must start taking care of your liver now more than ever. Why? Because the latest data from the American Heart Association indicates that adults with fatty liver were 3.5 times more likely to have heart failure than those without. The American Liver Foundation says that 100 million Americans have fatty liver, which means many people are at risk. We throw everything at our livers. Cholesterol, alcohol, toxins, Tylenol, statins, cigarettes. That's why so many of us have a sluggish, fatty liver that makes us gain weight and lose energy. For decades now, your liver has helped you with over 500 key functions every day. It's time you help your liver. There is a solution, liver health formula an all-natural supplement which contains 12 clinically proven botanicals that help recharge and protect your liver. Manufactured right here in the USA and approved by American doctors. You can try Liver Health Formula and receive a free bottle of nano-powered omega-3 to keep your heart healthy too. It's a 64% discount in total. Order today 
at getliverhelp.com slash James and claim your free gift. That's getliverhelp.com slash James. How minimal can a church get before it ceases to be a church? You know, if you're, you're doing away with sacraments, you're maybe not hitting people over the head right. with the Bible. Maybe there isn't even sort of like a, you know, scripture in a sermon. You're just trying to get them all in the room and point them toward Jesus. At, at what point does that cease to, you know, to have the, the spiritual sticking power that's needed to keep uh, Christianity going? I do think, now, again, Ferris, you come from a sacramental tradition. And so, you know, the Protestant churches, by and large, were not, were not sacramentalist, you know, in that way. And so I think, you know, clearly they would say, look, the basic creeds of the church, the Nicene Creed, the, the Apostles' Creed, you got to have that. You have to have the soul as the Reformation. You have to believe in the Bible. Uh, and, and there's different markers that uh, different sociologists have come up with around, you know, kind of what's, what's core there. Uh, I think these institutions sort of, they, they are recognizable churches, you know, in the sense that they're a community of the, the people of God pursuing discipleship studying the Bible, praying, you know, serving the poor, uh, hearing the preaching of the word, all of the different me ordinary means of grace, you know, as we would say uh, in, in that. And, and yes, there's, there are sacraments, baptism and the, and the Lord's Supper exists in a different sort of theological context than you're used to. I do think the, the challenge that these churches face, again, is that they were, you know, in essence, especially with, you know, starting with the seeker-sensitive movement, you do end up with, with churches that were sort of, they were designed to be relevant. It was sort of a market, again, a market research. What can we do to design a church that will be relevant to a particular milieu of people? You know, originally it was suburbanizing baby boomers. And so now as the baby boomers are passing on, as trends change, how do you sustain that over time, I think is a challenge for them because many of the things that made these churches very successful back in the day are just no longer all current. And so you sort of see that many of these older mega churches themselves now have what I call mainline disease, which is to say that they're skewing older, not as many young families, less dynamic congregations, you know, their, their building isn't quite, they don't have like, the, their music is not as hip as it once was. So I do think the challenge for, I mean, American evangelicalism is that um, a lot of it was designed for contextualized to particular places in particular times, which means that, that you know, like any sort of style, it's going to have to be updated uh, over time. And then, you know, I think that's uh, something that, you know, I'm, I'm Presbyterian and we have a traditional kind of reformed uh, liturgy that's, you know, you can go look at what they were doing in the 50s. It's not totally different. I mean, it's, it's a little bit updated, but there's a structure to it. Uh, and I think those things, uh, you know, that's why there's a lot of Presbyterian churches that have been around, you know, 200 years, uh, you know, or more. And so I, I think, you know, I, I think there has been a, a move towards, uh, you know, so, some more of that kind of like uh, anchoring a little bit more, trying to get more anchoring and a little less relevance. I think that's one of the things that will have to be updated for the future, for example, uh, there's a famous book from the 1950s called Christ and Culture. It was written by H. Richard Niebuhr. And he talked about five different patterns of how Christians had always interacted with the culture. It was essentially is how have Christi Christians reconciled sort of um, reason and revelation, you know, natural law and, and, and uh, you know, Christ's law, 
you know, the world and the church. And so he, he had all these different models. And uh, Tim Keller took those uh, and uh, he, he, he divided them into four. He combined a couple of them and came up with essentially four models of how churches had, had been run, which he called transformationalist, relevance, two kingdoms, and counterculture. And so relevance would be like these sacrosensitive churches. They were designed to be relevant to a particular group of people in a particular place at a particular time. Uh, he would have said that the culture war people were transformationalist because they wanted to transform society through politics. They wanted to use politics to transform society. Tim Keller himself had transformationalist ambitions. His view was if we could get 10% of New York City to become, become Christian, it would transform the society of the cities. There's transformation. Two kingdoms I'll skip over, but like counterculture would be something like the Amish or, um, you know, sort of sects of that nature that are, that are more, a little more separatist. They, um, they you know, yeah, uh, Niebuhr talked about this as the Christ against culture model, which was sort of modeled on 1 John about separating from the world. It's like, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? That sort of mentality. Tertullian was one of his, his people. And here's my argument that for evangelical churches, they, they've primarily been in the relevance mode and in the transformation mode, and we need to become much more, not to abandon relevance and transformation or the other goals, but to rebalance in favor of counterculture, which is to say we need to be a more distinct culture of our own that focuses on sustaining its own community strength in a country whose sort of general culture is no longer friendly or reinforces the basic norms of your old society. Again, you go back to the 50s, there was prayer in schools. You know, there was people reading the Bible in schools. Um, and like, that's no longer the case, right? The schools are no longer inculcating, essentially, Protestant values. Now they're inculcating very different values. So you have to start thinking more like a religious minority, you might need to think. And, you know, self-consciously thinking about how do we how do we create practices that demarcate and sustain our own community life? And that's where I think some of this quest for liturgy and rootedness and um, some of the traditions of the Reformation, which is actually very sophisticated. I mean, if you go back and read a guy like Calvin, I mean, he, he was brilliant. And, you know, his books are this thick. If there's any question you came up with, they've got the answer, right? It's like, uh, and, and he knew Everything that Thomas Aquinas had said, he engaged with Aquinas, John Chrysostom, all the church fathers. And there really is a, there is a lot of robustness to Protestantism, I think, that's not appreciated. And there, I think there has been a move to sort of recapture some of that. Well, so you've got American Reformer going on here, yeah. uh, which is uh, which is taking off. Um, you, this is a this is a, a zone of controversy, I guess, among Christians about sort of which way to go, Protestant Christians anyway. Um, there's a lot of talk about Christian nationalism now. Uh, you came out and said, no, actually, that's not, that's not the move. Why not? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of debates about Christian nationalism. And I, I, to some extent, Christian nationalism is just a pejorative used by the left to criticize people they don't like. I mean, I think it was originated uh, by the left. And I think some people in the evangelical world decided to own the insult um, a little bit and talk about some of these classic Protestant political theologies and the relationship of 
church and state and the role that the, the state could play in defending the church. We could think about, for example, the model in England where there's a state church. That would be like one Protestant, uh, one Protestant model that would have been considered valid theologically you know, within the Protestant tradition. And some people have—I'm not an expert on that, but they've gone back and they've talked a little bit about that. Uh, and, and so there are debates about Protestant political uh, theology that I think are very healthy. Um, you know, a lot of um, a lot of evangelicals have not really spent a lot of time uh, thinking about anything except maybe just a default Americanism. And I think as a result, became we became a little bit too dependent on Catholic intellectuals. So you know, a lot of Protestants would point to Patrick Deneen and his "Why Liberalism Failed" or things of that nature. And I think we have we don't need to again we don't need to outsource all of our thinking to Catholics because we have our own robust tradition. So a lot of this Christian nationalism discussion is essentially a, a rediscovery and debate of our own traditions, which I think is one thing. For from my perspective, um, I think a lot of people are driven to things like Christian nationalism because they see that things have not gone well in our society. You know, not just that it's it's not Christian, but you look at it, okay, we have declining life expectancy. In America, you know that's not good. We have over a hundred thousand opioid deaths per year. That's not good. We have rampant mental illness among young people. Birth you rates, T counts, like, sperm count. It's yeah, all it's going like everything. Down. It's all going down. All, all there's a lot of trends going down. Not getting, not all is bad. Okay, there's a lot of things that are going great, but what's going great right <laughs> now? Just so I can remember, uh, rockets. Elon Musk is revolutionizing space, man. Uh, so how, how good is that for us, though, <laughs> really? Well, I mean, no, no. I mean, was, you know, the reality is the United States is still an extraordinarily prosperous country. And, um, you know, we have, like, high technology, a lot of things. I don't want to oversell the case that America is going down the tubes. Uh, but I do think there are a lot of negative trends that are particularly affecting people in kind of, a, you know, the bottom two-thirds of society from a sort of, you know, an income and education perspective. And I think there's a thing that, like, we need to do something different. And that's why you end up with, like, you know, Deneen, why liberalism failed. This isn't even, like, a Protestant thing. This is a lot of people. And they start going after solutions like Catholic integralism or post-liberalism or these various Nietzschean movements or uh, the Red Caesar, uh, as uh, someone once put it. And I think the reality is that we have within the American cultural and political tradition all of the resources that we need to essentially address the problems of our nation. Uh, you know, because we have faced very serious problems in the past. You know, Civil War, Great Depression, World War II, the Cold War. And at every point along the way, we have been able to refresh the institutions of society and make major, major changes to the country within our basic cultural and political framework in order to address those new challenges. So I believe it's not necessary to embrace post-liberalism or Christian nationalism or anything like that in order to make major changes in our society. I mean, I look at a guy like FDR, which a lot of conservatives don't like FDR. I mean, in a sense, post-war political conservatism was created to oppose the New Deal. I mean, that was one of the things they want to oppose. But here is a guy who was a you know, as they say, he fundamentally transformed the country. Blue uh, Caesar. Yeah, uh, he was. He was. Four he terms. was. He was the American Caesar. I mean, he was a uh, pat patrician uh, wasp from just ultimate blue blood family. You know, Harvard, all the right pedigrees of, of school. 
but he was also very charismatic, had a direct connection with the American people, used radio and mass media. Uh, he was able to be became president for life. He violated the norm of only serving two terms. Uh, you know, he bullied the Supreme Court. He, he did created a, the administrative state. He created Lots the administrative state. He did a lot of things. And, uh, you know, he basically won World War II. He did a lot of things, uh, many of which, quite frankly, we don't want to get rid of. Uh, you, you know, and so I do think I do think. Well, there's hold, a, hold on. So, so what, what do you want to keep from FDR? <laughs> well, we're not getting rid of the administrative state. You know, you know, there's a there's a we're going to have large government and it has to be administered. And so I do think there's a sense in which we have to face somewhat reality on that. There's no rolling back the clock to a classical laissez-faire system that predated the managerial state. Well, okay, so it's 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 hard to disagree with that. Yeah. Um, however, it seems like you're you're teeing up a situation where we're stuck with a big government, but America's not really a nation. Isn't that like a recipe for some kind of disaster? You know, I mean, part of the fire reason we're not, what you call it, we're not a nation is because, um, you know, the border and things of that nature. I mean, I don't think. Um, oh, well, I don't, just, just, just kind of going FDR, back to your argument that, you well, know, FDR America st starts out as a, as a sort of a people, as a sort yeah. of colonist, yeah. uh, country of colonists, of right. settlers, and we got these, these different waves coming in. And so it, it isn't like Americans were, you know, within, within living memory or historical memory, sort of generation after generation, present on the same land for, you know, thousand plus years, different kind of thing. And I agree with yeah, that. Well, we had different, different peoples at different right. times. Well, I say we are a more protean, I think, nation. Mm -hmm. I mean, America, this is where I think, you know, we like to talk about, we got to go back to the founding, go back. You know, if you, went, if you went to like 1875 or 1885, probably most people weren't thinking we really need to get back to the Puritans. We really need to get back to authentic American New England. No, they're thinking we need to conquer the West. It's manifest destiny, it's expansionist, it's we're build baby build on the railroads, we're building great cities, building factories. You know, it's, a, it's pushing the envelope of technology, of society. It's a very forward-looking, constantly changing society. And that doesn't mean there's not an American people because there, is, there are an American people. We do have a culture. It is different. I do argue that it's different than Europe. And that's one of my arguments that like, you know, my. My mother's family came from Sicily. Nationalism in an Italian context with trying to build a nation where there had never been a nation with, with the reunification of Italy, that's a classic European nationalist project. Uh, that's not us. Um, so we are a nation, but we're, you know, we're kind of very protean and we have a lot of things. But, but the point being that you know, we, we are changing and we always have changed and we can change again, right? We could build a wall. There's nothing stopping us from building a wall that would be very much in the American tradition to say, if we basically shut off immigration, that's an authentically American thing. If we pulled back from many of our imperial projects overseas, that would be authentically within the American tradition of non-interventionism. We have a lot of resources and a lot of things that are authentically American. We don't need to go outside of the uh, American tradition in order for us to find what we need to make major changes in society to address the problems that we have. That's my main point. The other one is that the left basically hates America. They think it's, you know, whatever, settler, colonialist, everything that they say, they, they basically claim it's evil, 1619 project. And it's like, so they've left all these American symbols, our culture, our history for us to claim. 
And that has, as they would say, a lot of brand equity. It resonates with people. People, we should be wrapping ourselves in Americana, not wrapping ourselves in, you know, continental Europe political philosophies or something of that nature, or outre things like Catholic integralism or Christian nationalism. I think, you know, now Trump apparently has used the term Christian nationalism, but if you listen to Trump, who really has his finger on the pulse of the American people, he uses terms like what? America first. That's like a term that I think people can get behind. It resonates with people today, just like it resonated with people when they originally did it. It's hard to argue against. You mean you don't want to put America first? Or if people try to explain, oh, what about the America first committee that didn't want us to take on? It's like some obscure historical debate yeah, if, that like, if, nobody even knows about. If not America first, then what is first? What, what is first? That's a great question. So that's like a great label, America first. And that's, so I think those are the sorts of things, and it's proven to be something that the American people like. In fact, the America first committee was founded at Yale. Something people don't want, people don't, or there, it was basically a blue blood project uh, from the word go, even back then. And oh, by the way, you know, after Pearl Harbor, they all decided to basically support our intervention in the war, of course. Uh, but I think those, that's the sort of thing we need to be thinking about, you know, is what is, how do we talk about America? The way that Reagan talked about America. Reagan didn't talk about nationalism, that I recall, in an American context as something we should aspire to have. And so looking at, uh, you know, although the quote unquote zombie Reaganism uh, type policies may not be appropriate, you know, the way that he talked about America, I think, was powerful. For years, Hollywood has been lacking when it comes to stories of redemption. Movies and TV shows have trended toward the anti-hero, the flawed person who makes no effort to change and just becomes worse and worse as the story goes on. Well, here's some great news. The Blind the true story of the Robertson family, is now available for purchase on Blaze TV. Maybe you've made a mess of your life. Maybe someone you love is in a dark place. Maybe all of the above. If you or someone you know feels beyond redemption, you need to watch this movie. You'll see there is always hope. Always. The Blind takes you on an incredible journey through the life of Phil Robertson, giving you an intimate look into the man behind the legend and the trials, the triumphs, and the values that have shaped him through the years. While The Blind wasn't a Blaze Media production, since Phil is such a big part of our Blaze TV family, we wanted to make sure you had the opportunity to stream it right here. Because it isn't ours, we can't include it as part of the subscription. But if you'd rather purchase it and stream it here instead of Apple and Amazon, we wanted to make sure the opportunity was there. Act now. Don't miss this opportunity to own The Blind, a Phil Robertson story on Blaze TV. Buy it today at blazetv.com slash theblind for $19.99. That's blazetv.com slash the blind. Well, here's what I think. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of talk about Christian nationalism. Uh, I, in, in my book, Human Forever, a couple years ago, uh, basically I laid out a lot of what the book was about was digital technology sort of ate the world. What is the result? The result is suddenly everyone's asking, what's the point of being human? Why should I do anything anymore? This thing is overawing all of us. And, uh, and calling sort of all of our fundamental practices and our identity into question. So if you're a statesman, if you're involved in governance, how do you respond? How do you respond to this kind of massive psychological crisis that's being inflicted on, on your people? Uh, and I suggested that you basically have one option. Uh, if you are a big country, like a civilization state that's been around forever, uh, 
you know, United States, not, not quite there yet in the way that like an India or China is, but seemingly on its way. Uh, there isn't another country that's just like the US. We got this big continental landmass. Seems like we're going in that direction. Uh, so what do you do? You need some kind of resource that you can reach for uh, that allows you to reestablish uh, your sovereignty and the authority of your political control over uh, not just the people, but also the technology within your boundaries. Uh, and what it looks like is happening, and this is, I think, logical and reasonable, is these big digital powers are turning to the kind of original or founding religion within their civilization state. So you see the Russians doing this with Eastern Orthodoxy. You see uh, China's kind of struggling because they still have a lot of secular guys, but they're also, you know, real Taoists, real Confucianists, and, and they're trying to reach back to those origins and say, look, we're better at controlling technology than the West because the West goes back to Athens, and Athens has this sort of dualistic right. mindset about the physical and the material. So there's that kind of elaborate conversation. Uh, obviously, in India, you got Hindu nationalists, like sort of uh, trying to articulate a way for for how the internet should be controlled or regulated. Obviously in Europe, you got something similar happening. The Vatican wants to be a big part of those conversations. But, uh, and then you got, you know, you got the Anglosphere. Uh, and uh, things are pretty hot and heavy right now in the Anglosphere. You're looking at what's going on in Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand, you know, bad stuff. Stuff that looks not but, very Western, but it, it's happening. And it's happening for these reasons. They're trying to find some sort of ultimately, I think, theological underpinning to setting uh, spiritual control over technology. And so in the U.S., you've got this conflict going on. Um, that kind of conflict uh, is driven by a desire, I think, to go back to America's religious origins in search of some, some kind of spiritual authority that's powerful enough to set the rules for technological development. Um, and in that sense, it's really not surprising to see people want to actually go back toward the Puritans. Mm -hmm. um, after all, you know, the Puritans, yes, they were small, are Republican, anti-monarchist, uh, but in terms of theology, they were very strict. Yeah. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, it's first pages of Democracy in America, he says, like, look, if you want to understand the Anglo-Americans, you've got to go back to the Puritans uh, if you want to understand America. And for the Puritans, um, education was very important. You mentioned the Ivies, you mentioned Yale. Uh, education was kind of the bridge where you go from a very strict... Uh, uh, religious framework um, to infuse what's a very loose or mm -hmm. experimental political framework. Um, I think that's continued throughout American history. I think New England has been kind of a nation within a nation. Yeah, we have these different groups of peoples and they're sort of moving into the West and everything. Uh, but that kind of Puritan political theology has actually proven to be very resilient, maybe even more resilient than, than whether it's Puritanism or any of the things that started to replace it, transcendentalism. I mean, Puritanism really didn't last that long and right. opened the door to all kinds of sort of mutations uh, that flowed out from there. Um, but you mentioned FDR as sort of like the, the wasp Caesar. Um, and in a lot of ways he was. Uh, people tend to forget that, you know, the Caesars were kind of worshipped as gods. Um, and that's, that's woven in there. Um, so when people are worried about um, a Christian theocracy, or about Christian nationalism. Uh, on the one hand, you know, I think that that your uh, sort of critique of that um, is is on a pretty pretty firm ground. But on the other hand, like yes, there has been this theocratic temptation in the U.S. and there has been this desire to kind of use education to uh, to do a kind of an end run around um, our our political institutions that are decentralizing and pushing power away from the center and down toward the ground level um, and concentrate it in the hands of people who have been spiritually indoctrinated in a certain way. I mean, that's what wokeness is, right? It's the mm -hmm. same playbook. It's just moved from, 
uh, from a, a, a relatively more strict Christian theology to something that, you know, is about being accommodationist and being ecumenical and being inclusive and being, you know, diverse and being equitable, all these kinds of patterns that were inherited or lifted from that, mm-hmm. that original political theology and are just being mapped onto a society for the purpose of, you know, the sort of things that you described, transforming it, making it more progressive. You know, these kinds of impulses, these instincts actually run quite deep. Uh, mm-hmm. at least in New England, and New England was kind of the nation within a nation that did exert this kind of dominant influence over American life and American political development. So, you know, a lot of people are resistant to, say, to, 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 to the suggestion that what we're seeing now with wokeness and the way it's played is sort of taken over the universities and is spread from the universities out into the political apparatus, that that's really not something that should be so shocking considering the way that digital technology is presenting us with this kind of... Uh, 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 incredible pressure to resort or revert to deep religious resources in order to reestablish political control over technology. And then Mm -hmm. to look at the way that that the Puritan tradition, yeah, it got far away theologically in many respects from what the Puritans would have recognized as Christianity, but the trajectory has been quite similar. And I think it's just going to continue to push you know, a, a theology of forever transcending itself, of becoming more perfect, more complete, more progressive, more inclusive. It's brought us to where we are right now, hasn't it? Well, it's certainly a religious movement. There's no doubt about that. Wokeness. Uh, and, of course, people like, uh, you know, Josh Mitchell at, at Georgetown and others have kind of talked about it as a sort of a post-Protestant heresy. And they, I think there are elements of what you might call the Puritan hypothesis um, in there. Uh, I don't want to make it, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to put a pin all the blame on the Protestants. I think there's a, a tendency among a lot of people to try to pin the blame on the Puritans and, and some Protestant element of society specifically uh, for some of these things. Only they really only came to the fore as Protestants essentially lost control of the country. You know, it's not the old WASP establishment running America anymore. The, you know, the New England elites that produced people like, we're not running FDR, right, anymore, right? We've got Bill Clinton and, uh, you know, the Irish Catholic, Joe Biden, right, is certainly not from, from that, uh, you know, nor is Chuck Schumer, uh, nor is our new Speaker of the House. And so, uh, yeah, I, so, I, so I do think, you know, we, we don't want to just uh, overly, overly narrowly, you know, we're going to check out about the community, but I do think there's an element of that that is true, and the sort of religious impulse that's sort of in American culture, which I think is legitimately there. That's where I feel like we didn't have a state church, but we did have sort of, let's call it soft institutionalization, you know, informally in the institutions of society. Uh, you know, sort of like we don't have a government healthcare system, but it's not really a private healthcare system either. It's kind of this weird hybrid. I think America religiously has been this weird hybrid where it doesn't have a formal establishment, but sort of, you know, there was a lot of things that were informally there. And the religious impulse is certainly very big in America, as we've seen from the periodic great awakenings uh, that we've seen in our country. Um, So I certainly think, uh, you know, that impulse is probably still present, you know, in society and underpins some of these things in a way that wouldn't be true in, say, Italy, in more stagnant society. But I think that's part, that's part of the propulsive force of America that, as I was talking about, that's like constantly propelling us into the future. I think there is sort of a, a religious impulse underlying some of that. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly agree that uh, the temptation to just point at a group of yeah. people who aren't around to defend themselves anymore, uh, mm -hmm. those are the bad guys, if it wasn't for them, yeah, I think that's that's a dead end and that's that's the wrong kind of move to make. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, I'm also, I'm a media guy, I'm a media theory guy, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's, you know, Marshall McLuhan or Jean Baudrillard or, you know, Virilio, like there are lots of these guys. Um, and they saw what was coming pretty clearly and uh, and I think one of the things that we can take away from those guys without having to sort of, you know, worm our way through the entire corpus because who has time to read long books anymore, um, is that you can't really understand uh, the way that sort of the trajectory of religious experience in America without understanding what happened to us in terms of waves of uh, communications technology. But this goes back to Europe. You know, you don't really have the Protestant Reformation. You don't have the wars of religion without the printing press. Um, you look at what happened with radio. You look at what happened with television. These mm. had a profound effect on the way Christianity was experienced and practiced mm -hmm. and promulgated in America, uh, whether it's, you know, televangelism or, or, or Father Coughlin or what have you, right? right? Like these different media created different environments wherein uh, the, the development of American Christianity changed and shifted around. Um, and so what do we end up with uh, in, in digital life? Um, you've noticed, as, as everyone else has, how um, the, uh, the unfolding war in, in Israel with Gaza uh, has sort of resulted in some unanticipated or surprising changes in public opinion. It's not really like the old days when, uh, you know, if, if Israel was in trouble, everyone sort of rose up and right. said, we well, stand with Israel. It's more complicated now. There are sort of more questions. People are a little bit unsure about where this is going. It seems as if the terrain, the environment itself has changed in a way where that old kind of theological reflex of, mm -hmm. you know, Judeo-Christian values, the Judeo-Christian right. ethic, we're a Judeo-Christian country. All of that has kind of been disrupted. And you know, if you if you're trying to understand what what Judeo Christianity is, I would say it's a political theology, and I would say you know you got to go back not just to the American Puritans, but before that you go to you know the mm -hmm. the English Civil War, you go to Cromwell, you go to mm -hmm. the Puritans in in England, those kind of second wave Calvinists who came back from from Switzerland and came to to uh, you know the. Uh, uh, Netherlands and mm -hmm. England and said, hey, we learned some things and we got this new interpretation of some parts of scripture where, right. you know, actually certain things need to happen with, uh, with the, the restoration of the, the state of Israel or kingdom of, 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 uh, of Israel in order for the end times to get going and maybe right. that would be a good thing. Uh, so you start having all these kinds of things and Judeo-Christianity begins to emerge then. Uh, just the Reformation itself, you know, Catholicism bad, monarchy bad, um, how do we separate ourselves from that mm. uh, in, in terms of how we how we develop a Protestant Christian nation state? There's some nation building for you. Uh, you know, the Dutch, the English, basically saying like, well, we can look to ancient Israel mm. as a template. We can look to the mosaic uh, political mm. structure where you've got the overawing one and you've got the many sort of grumbling beneath. And if you don't have the one, then they won't get in, they won't, won't whip them into shape. They'll be worshiping idols when you turn your back before you know it. Um, you mentioned Josh Mitchell. He's laid some of this stuff out in some of his mm. other books. Uh, and I think he's right that there was uh, a, a profoundly um, Hebraic uh, uh, approach to trying to establish political authority coming out of the Reformation in Protestant 
states. Um, so why am I going through all this? Well, you know, the, a lot for me, a lot of this, you talk about Christian nationalism is so interesting because, you know, didn't we already try it? And wasn't it Judeo-Christian nationalism? And isn't kind of the interesting question right now, what's happening to Judeo-Christian nationalism? Is there something about what technology is doing to us where, you know, all these kind of hallmarks of the lived experience of of Judeo-Christian life, you know, books are really important. Mm -hmm. uh, the the Old Testament is just as important to sort of learn as the New Testament. You got to know your Hebrew and your Greek. Trust the scholars. Uh, institutionalized education. Mm -hmm. This is where you sort of understand what it means to be a Christian or what it means to be religious is through a deep study of theological texts, mm -hmm. commentaries on religion, Talmudic kind mm -hmm. of approach. You know, all that whole sort of universe mm -hmm. of culture is kind of being undermined, if not out and out destroyed, I think, by what digital technology is doing to us. People don't want to sit down and read Kelvin's Institutes. People don't even remember who Karl Barth is. Like right. that whole kind of world of deep, literate, literary scholarship is being sapped away. Um, that whole kind of, you know, I mean, I've joked about this on the show before, where you have conservatives going, critical theory, no, evil, but critical thinking, yes, that's <laughs> going to save us. These things aren't quite as different as you might want them to be. Right. But there is this kind of cultural churn. There is this kind of transformation. And I do think that digital technology is throwing into question those kinds of patterns of thought, patterns of experience, patterns of education and instruction. Uh, that are kind of at the heart of what Judeo-Christian nationalism was and at the heart of that kind of Western identity of itself. You know, what is the West? Why, in what sense are we hanging together? Do we have a sort of a, a we-ness, you know, and, and mm -hmm. where does that we-ness come from? Um, I think all of that is now more up for grabs now than it has been in a long time. I think that's one reason why wokeness has kind of flowed in and become so powerful. You look at just what's going on at Harvard University right now. Right. You know, this has finally trickled up to a point where administration is like, oh, I guess we have a, an anti-Semitism problem on mm -hmm. campus that we need to address. And how are they addressing it? They're not addressing it by pointing at, uh, you know, at, at Palestinian sympathizers or, mm -hmm. or at, at uh, political Islam. Uh, they're, the line they're going with is, well, you know, our WASP founders were pretty anti-Semitic and we've mm -hmm. got this legacy that we need to deal with. Mm -hmm. And in the 20s, they tried to cap, you know, how many Jews could come on campus. Yeah. And that's the direction that they want to go in. They want to go with back to, you know, blame, uh, blame the Puritans. Well, guess what? The Puritans were actually quite Hebraic in their theology, right. quite philo-Semitic in the way that they understood um, whether it's millenarianism, dispensationalism, you just get all these hallmarks right. of what Protestant theology became in the United States. Um, so when I'm watching these wheels spin, I'm thinking, you know, at some point the music is going to stop. And when the music stops and people realize how profoundly digital technology is reworking our environment, our inner and outer experience, is Judeo-Christian um, identity going to survive? What do you think? Yeah. You're the expert on technology and media and all of that. So I don't want but to- But you're the Protestant expert, I, so I you got you know, you I do think in. there's like, you know, from your media theory, I do think there's this whole idea that, you know, the, from a sort of a literary culture, the culture of the book, you know, the culture of the eight hour Lincoln, you know, uh, Douglas debates, uh, you know, giving way. And of course people started with television was really when people started to say, we're, we're losing that. And, yeah. and it's, you know, it's this vast wasteland of television. And then people said, well, we need to have like good television programming, at least try to be edifying. Uh, and so the, I think there's been this sense that that old literary culture has been going for a long time. Uh, I think some of the changes, you know, ha you, you, technology is probably one aspect of it. 
we can't neglect demographic change. I mean, demographic change is probably the foundational uh, fact of, you know, the United States and changes in the United States in a long time. I mean, everybody, you know, the baby boomers came of age at where we had the lowest foreign-born population share, like, in the history of the country. It was like 5% in 1970. It was essentially, you know, an overwhelmingly white country with, you know, a 12%, uh, you know, black minority and a few Jews and a few other people here and there. But it was essentially like maybe, even in the 70s and 80s, it was essentially a, a biracial, you know, country. Go, go look at the TV shows. Uh, go look at a, a film like The Blues Brothers, looking at Chicago. It's just a purely biracial city. We've had mass immigration uh, into the country. Um, we're headed, you know, it's predicted to be a majority-minority country, you know, 20 years from now. Um, and we've had generational change in which, you know, we had this boomer-dominated society for a long time, and the boomer demographic is now starting to pass away. Younger people are simply going to think differently, particularly I think there's a huge divide between people whose formative years were during the Cold War, uh, such as myself being Generation X, but like, yeah, a lot of the Israel stuff, for example, just, you know, just this raw support for Israel, that sort of dispensational system was like, it was end times fervor in that era because the Soviet Union portended, you know, the, the Armageddon and the Gog. And and Y2K, baby. Yeah. And so it's all that. And then you go, people who came, came of age after the Cold War. And that's why I think that's a, a big difference here. But I think realistically, we have different demographics today. I mean, it's, it's no longer, uh, uh, you know, no longer. I mean, America was 98% Protestant, right, at the founding. Uh, it's still plurality Protestant. The culture is definitely very Protestant. Uh, but we just have a lot of people now who were not a product of that formation. And particularly going back to, you know, for a long time now, you know, going back to like even the 70s and the dawn of sort of multicultural education, we really haven't been teaching people, you know, the old system. We've sort of been teaching them new things. And so uh, I think demographic change is, like, is a huge factor um, in the country. It's just not, it's not the same people that we had back then, both generationally and in terms of the sort of ethnic origins of the population. Yeah, no question, no question about it. So I, I feel like that, that is a huge factor. You have a book. Yes. I don't have the book. It's not out yet. It's not out yet. January. January 30th, yeah. It's called? It's called Life in the Negative World. Okay, and so, we, we now have a pretty good idea of what yeah. the negative world is, so that, that helps. Yeah. So there's a subtitle, too, which, I, which yeah, is pretty good. Yeah, it, it actually escapes me, too. Okay. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't invent that. It's kind of one of the things. It's like uh, authors don't choose their own headlines sort of thing. But, yeah, it's out. It's, it's with Zondervan Reflective, which is a major evangelical publishing house. And um, so, basically, it's, it's an expanded treatment of that uh, thesis I gave at the, at the beginning about the three worlds and then sort of the three different tribes. And then a lot of it is like, how should we live, uh, again, oriented towards evangelicals, but it could be anybody in this new negative world. That's about 75% of the book. And one of the things that I say, uh, I think the core theme of it is we need to adopt an exploration mindset. You know, I think if you go back to, to uh, Bill Hybels in the 70s, you know, he did, he did a classic like business plan, business school approach. I'll do a market survey. 
I'll knock on doors, ask people why they go to church. I'll find out what the incumbents aren't doing to serve the market. I'll design the product that they want to buy. Boom. Uh, exploration is a little bit more like the zero to one concept. It's like, hey, great, we're going to colonize Mars, says Elon Musk. I don't know how we're going to colonize Mars, but we're going to go figure out how to go colonize Mars. And essentially, you know, exploration used to, you know, there was the age of exploration, the age of explorers. And then sort of in the early 20th century, we saw the dawn of management. And we had the dawn of sort of engineering and management and the end of exploration. There are no more Lewis and Clark expeditions going off into the unknown. Now everything's going to be planned, managed, controlled. We're not going to build structures that we don't know are going to stay up anymore. We have perfect engineering, all of that. And so we lost some of the mindset of uh, going off into the unknown, into a terrain that we haven't been in before, into a world that's not comfortable to us. And I think we need to get much more comfortable in the unknown, thinking about the unknowns and that we don't have a map of what the new terrain is going to look like in the future. How is this digital technology going to play out? I don't know. And, and so I think we need to, to have that uh, exploration mindset and you know walk more by faith than by sight, as we may have done in the past, where we seem to, to live you know, in the 80s, where we kind of knew how the world worked, or, or thought we did at any rate. And then I talk a little bit about, you know, um, the, the, the personal, the institutional, and the missional, uh, in terms of the different dimensions of, um, uh, of that. So personal, uh, you know, is uh, the, the uh, World Economic Forum line that you'll own nothing and you'll love it. Well, I argue the opposite. You need to own things, because we're not going to be able to rely on the marketplace to treat us fairly. Um, you know, you're going to get deplatformed from social media, for example. So if you rely on those kinds of uh, sort of other people's platforms, other people's stuff, uh, central bank digital currencies, you, you know, you name it, uh, you're really sort of at the mercy. They can, they can cut you off at any time with their social credit score. And so much more uh, uh, ownership is going to be like a big theme uh, of the book. And so those are some of the things I, I talk through and. We could talk about this, but I hope to give people not a complete business plan for the future, but some ideas and themes about how to start um, how to start addressing that, both as individuals and families, as sort of churches, communities, and institutions, and then as in terms of mission and how we engage with the world. Well, this is a, an aggressively unfolding debate, so I'm looking forward to uh, reading your book-length contribution. I do have one last question for you. We got a few minutes left on the clock. Uh, you talk about exploration. You talk about explorers. Um, if you're too naive or if you're too nihilistic, or if you're too uh, egomaniacal, like exploration can actually result in some pretty gnarly things. So how much religious faith, what kind of religious faith do explorers need to have in order for their endeavors to go well? Well, certainly from a standpoint of the Christian explorer, I think that's really sort of one of the themes of the Bible in a sense. And just, just as examples, uh, if you go to the book of Joshua, when... You know, the Israelite people, they've been in the desert for 40 years. These are people who were raised in the desert, have lived in the desert their whole life. That's the world that they knew. And now they're getting ready to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. And they don't know what's there. They've never been there. But they know there's like fearsome people there that aren't going to give it up about, without a fight. So the, the Ark of the Covenant is going to cross the Jordan ahead of them. And there's this line where they say, follow the Ark because you have not been this way before. The idea being you got to keep your eye of the ark representing God's presence with them. 
keep your eye on that and move forward in faith into this new terrain, trusting. Or you could think of a Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your, your path straight. And so I think that's an important aspect of it is to understand that, um, you know, uh, God's, you know, God's sovereignty and, and the supernatural is super important to think about because if we, we can't engage in the future properly if we don't have a sense of like who's really in control uh, of this world. And, and so I think that's, the, 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 to getting it right, uh, not that you will necessarily, not that we'll always make the right answers, but definitely having the right theological perspective of, you know, my Calvinistic view of the world is who's really in charge here, I think is critical. Yeah, well, I mean, I think what I'd add in, in these final closing seconds is, uh, you know, you, one of the, the most important frontiers where we need to, uh, to do a little bit more exploration is in our very own hearts, uh, where, you know, yep. that's, that's where our relationship with God really unfolds. And uh, having, having the courage to, uh, to follow his lead uh, in your heart is really where it all begins. Thank you so much, Aaron Wren. That is just about all the time we have today. I invite you all to like and subscribe for more content just like this. And if you are on YouTube, comment below who you would like to see on this very show. It does help us out a lot. In the meantime, follow Aaron and all that he's up to at AaronWren.com. That's A-A-R-O-N-R-E-N-N.com. And check out his links in the description box below. Until next time, I am James Polis. This is Zero Hour. God have mercy on us all.